Hello, and welcome back to Me, Us, You, a podcast made by me, well, us, about us, for you. Today we would like to tell you a story about gender, sexuality, and all of the queer little things that pop up in our community. From the early modern history of queer culture to the future that many queer students face, we have compiled stories and experiences that may move you, scare you, or at least make you go, wow, that's so gay. Before we start, we would like to preface by saying that we are a small group of queer people with many opinions. And we would like to let everyone know that these are our opinions and views. And some may not be the same views as everyone in the community. So please, let this be an open conversation and not an argument. With that said, let us show you our gay gays. Yeah. Hey, I'm Mira. I would like to warn you that the word queer is sometimes used interchangeably with LGBTQ plus within this podcast. We recognize and want to remind listeners that not everyone in the LGBTQ plus community is comfortable with identifying with the word queer. So if someone does not want you to apply it to them, don't. Somewhere between 2 and 6% of Americans are on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. If you're one of them, then it was impossible to identify yourself as such before the mid-1900s. Homosexuality was represented in some way in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM for short, until its fourth iteration in the 1990s. This is because of the length of time that the majority of the country spent believing that being gay was a disease, something brought on by potentially having an overbearing mother or a passive father. Many queer people were shoved into mental asylums. These institutions, already known for their cruelty towards the mentally ill, would perform shock therapy and lobotomies, among other dangerous procedures, on people in hopes of eradicating that which made them gay. Meanwhile, in places like New York City and Chicago, police would regularly raid gay bars and arrest people on the grounds of sexual perversion or cross-dressing. Either male or female police officers, depending on which was appropriate for them, would make partygoers and even just people on the street that were profiled as cross-dressers show them their genitals. If they were wearing less than two articles of clothing that matched their genitals, they'd be arrested. In many cases, this also meant that they were forced to change or that they were assaulted by the police. As you may have guessed, the budding LGBTQ community eventually had enough of this awful treatment by the police and by society. In 1969, Police raided a mob-run bar known as the Stonewall Inn, located in Greenwich Village in New York City. While people were being arrested, verbally and physically abused, and carted into police cars, this was the straw that broke the camel's back for many present. Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, trans women of color and widely renowned drag queens, were among those who were at Stonewall and began to throw bricks, bottles, or whatever they could find at the police. A riot ensued that sparked violent protests and demonstrations for six whole days. The first ever Pride Parade, Christopher Street Liberation, was held a year later on the anniversary of the first Stonewall riot. After Stonewall, various groups organized in order to begin demanding civil rights for LGBTQ individuals. These groups included the Gay Liberation Front and the Gay Activists Alliance. Since then, the demand for visibility, validation, and personal livelihoods has only increased, and it was in large part thanks to the open defiance sparked by the Stonewall Riots.
Fast forwarding to the 1980s, the queer community had been organizing, protesting, and advocating for a few years, while still being ignored by the larger populace of the United States, who began identifying themselves as straight or heterosexual, to enforce a dichotomy against those who are gay or homosexual. Being LGBTQ+, still made you an outsider. Then the AIDS crisis began, infecting multitudes of gay people, most commonly gay men. CDC research of AIDS was incredibly slow and unfruitful, and the Reagan administration openly didn't care about the lives or deaths of gay people. Reagan himself never even acknowledged AIDS until five years into the epidemic. By that time, tens of thousands of gay men were dying of this virus that very little was known about. Eventually, though, something was done, but only in the wake of the death of two important people outside the queer community. The first was Ryan White, a child who had contracted AIDS through medically required blood transfusions. The second was Rock Hudson, a famous actor and icon to the heterosexual world at the time. The spotlight put on AIDS from the combination of these individuals, an innocent child and a well-known actor, prompted the government to take more steps to combat the disease. As well as this, the NAMES Project AIDS Memorial Quilt was laid down at the National Mall to spread awareness for those who had died from the disease. They had never received a memorial or even a gravesite due to the social stigma against the disease in the 80s and 90s. The AIDS Memorial Quilt is still being added to today, and is the largest piece of community-driven folk art in the world, weighing collectively over 54 tons. With no drugs on the market for gay Americans, they were forced to receive illegal treatments from outside the country, because their choice was either to break the law or die. Even then, the drug was not very effective. Eventually, an antiretroviral was developed that allowed people living with HIV or AIDS today to live long, healthy lives. Nonetheless, we cannot forget the thousands lost because their lives did not matter to the U.S. government enough for them to take action sooner. As of 2002, the cumulative deaths from AIDS in the U.S. is 501,669. Over half a million people. Now that I've explained some of the history behind the LGBTQ plus community, I'm visiting local expert, Dr. Paradis, to get some further insight on what all this history means today. First, I ask her to introduce herself for us. So, my name is Christiana Parody, and I'm the program coordinator for a Department of Justice Office of Violence Against Women grant that Susquehanna University has. Um, and I also am an adjunct faculty in the Women's Studies Department, and one of the courses that I teach is LGBTQ studies. Then I start asking some deeper questions. So I would like to start with, uh, where did you grow up? Yeah, so I actually grew up here in Sealands Grove. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Uh, so very small rural community in central Pennsylvania. Uh, so that uh, that was interesting. Although that being said, I always was kind of, in some ways, I was aware of LGBTQ issues um, because my mom um, had a lot of friends in the LGBTQ community, so I always grew up kind of seeing adults within the LGBTQ community, which I think is... Were they around important. Were they around a lot, or like were they just like casual friends that you saw? Yeah, it was definitely more casual, and it was interesting that, I mean, some of her friends um, I'd only see like every couple of years because they actually didn't live in, live in the state because mm -hmm. of, you know, part of the issues of just visibility in the community. Yeah. Um, but I at least grew up understanding... Um, that there was, you know, multiple expressions of the way um, people can be partnered, and I think that really, was really important um, to see and experience young. 
do you feel that the history of our community really matters outside of the community? Like, does do things like Stonewall and the results of the AIDS crisis like continue to affect uh, the heterosexual community today? Uh, does it affect politicians? I think members of the LGBTQ community are significantly more aware of our history and the the roller coaster we've kind of endured, as you mentioned, for decades. I feel like in in terms of politicians and people who identify as cis or heterosexual, I think I hate to say no because I don't want to generalize for, you know, the entire cishet community, but I think historically we've only seen people kind of really come to understand the issue when they have some type of personal connection to it. Um, and I feel that way even with, um, you know, I was a really big, you know, supporter of President Obama, but President Obama very similarly, you know, ran on a platform not supporting marriage equality. Um early on and then you know later was very vocal about um you know his daughters kind of helping him to understand but also friends and family that they had and knew that kind of made the issue real and so I feel like there's this issue of unless there's a personal connection to the LGBTQ community um cisgender and heterosexual people just aren't getting it um and I and I don't I hate to generalize because I do think I I'm sure that there are some people that don't have a personal connection and and get it but I um think that until it becomes personal that's the only time we see especially politicians kind of take up this issue yeah and I think even historically we've seen the opposite where it could be something personal and they even take the opposite the opposite stand because of a lot of internalized homophobia and heterosexism so do you believe that like any individuals have an impact similar or like even differently than history i do i think that i mean i think that you know, going off of the thing and, and making it personal and making people recognize, like, the importance of our existence, uh, I think it really speaks to the power of, of storytelling. Um, and in some ways, uh, it can be scary, but in some ways reaching across and and having experiences to tell our stories and meet people and talk about our lives and, and talk about how um, how critical it is to be supported and feel valid um, in a time where people are actively working to erase that. I think those are things that start to make a difference. And I think historically, you know, we've seen that. Um, I think that, you know, there's, there's tons of examples of, you know, historical LGBTQ fig- figures, um, Audre Lorde and um, Harvey Milk and um, um, Bainard Rustin, uh, I might be saying his name wrong, um, you know, huge civil rights leader uh, that was also a member of the queer community. And I think all of those people and their stories and having those stories recorded and being able to share those with people, I think that's really powerful. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's things that kind of um, speak to power a bit. Mm-hmm. The fact that we still idolize these people today to mm-hmm. some degree. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, and, and there's so many, too, and, th- and these are just, like, the stories we know 
now. I mean, there's so many stories that have been erased. Um, you know, obviously in class we've talked about Marsha B. Johnson and uh, Sylvia Rivera, and I mean, there's just hundreds and hundreds of examples of people that we don't even we don't even know about that we're doing this work for so long um, because predominantly it's who's been privileged is who has been able to tell stories. And so I think in the era of the internet, it, it's getting a bit easier for, um, you know, marginalized and underrepresented uh, groups of people to be able to, to share their stories or go viral or, um, you know, try to make those connections. Uh, and I think that that is really powerful. And I hope to see that momentum build as a platform to really tell stories that have been erased for so long. Uh, have you ever lived in like an, a more uh, city or suburban area? Um, I haven't ever, well, I very briefly lived in Towson, which is kind of like a suburb of Baltimore. Um, and, and that was that was a brief time, but I've traveled in and been in cities a lot. Um, so I could pull yeah. from those experiences just within those areas. Yeah. Uh, how would you describe the attitude uh, towards... LGBTQ plus individuals today in uh, urban areas as opposed to in rural areas? Um, because there are so many private universities you know, with, uh, like Susquehanna, with a great number of uh, LGBTQ individuals. I think, I think overall, um, we've become, there's, there's a higher level of tolerance, but I always say like, I, I don't want to be tolerated, like I want to be accepted and I want to feel comfortable and I want to feel safe. Um, And so while I think we've kind of moved forward um, in terms of tolerance, I still think we have a long way to go in terms of acceptance. And I do think there is some differences. I mean, just in terms of if you look at, um, and this will actually be a nice segue into the next question, but if you look at the locations of where Pride events are happening, predominantly they're in large cities. Yeah, all um, the biggest events are still in like San Francisco, New York City, Chicago. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're seeing more rural um, pride events um, cropping up. I know that Berks County, which is close to Philly, but more in the Reading area, um, you know, they do a pride event. I know Northeastern PA does a pride event. I know Harrisburg. So um, still kind of larger centers than than rural areas, but um, still rural when you compare them to large cities. I have noticed in terms of attending those Pride events that, um, you know, all of them very much still have silent support um, people there. Uh, and and that's and safety is something that's always. I mean, there's always protesters. That you, there's always at least one at Harrisburg, and though those numbers have gotten smaller, they're still there. And I think it's just a reminder that those people are still out there and still, you know, being violent and and just harassing. I mean, I think in terms of rural versus urban, I think I'm more concerned about safety in rural areas, Um, you know, in terms of if I'm in an area, you know, perfect example, like attending, you know, the farm show once at Harrisburg, um, and a partner I was with at the time 
we had driven separately and she was like kissing me goodbye and I remember like she did that without thinking and I like stiffened and like immediately felt like this panic and this like need to look around um because I just like didn't feel safe there for that so even in a more populated area mm -hmm. like Harrisburg you still don't feel safe showing affection for a partner yeah and I've even seen even an area you know not that long ago in Philly there was that like very public beating of two gay men um by three people and when I was in Philly uh last fall, I was actually there for the Trans Wellness Conference that the Mazzoni Center organizes, and um, my partner and I were walking through um, the neighborhood, mm-hmm. uh, and this woman walked by and said to these, these two men that were just literally smoking on their board, she just said, are you waiting for a parade? Which was just like this, and the, the one guy just got very offended and was like, what is that supposed to mean? And she immediately was like, oh, it was just a joke. But it was... It wasn't, though. Exactly. It was It was only like, a joke when he stood for himself. Stood exactly. For himself. It was just like this super blatant microaggression. And so I think you can even be in urban areas and still see and hear those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I mean, granted, I, I did feel like that was more of a scope of, like, a microaggression and... Not in terms of, like, I didn't feel physically unsafe in that space, but, um, I, I mean, I still think that it's just something you're constantly, still yeah. always thinking about. It doesn't yeah. go away. How do you believe that queer youth should go about the next few years mm-hmm. if they want to do something? Mm-hmm. I think it's, I think a lot of it is about paying attention and being active and, and knowing what's going on. And... and and being involved in that process, you know, voting, running for office, supporting candidates who have your best interests. There's so many different websites now that exist that really will, you know, lay out all of the candidates that are running and and you can see, okay, is this a person supporting LGBTQ rights or issues? Are they not? Um, and and if there's not, don't vote for them. Um, yeah. <laughs> please. And, and I think local elections are critically important. So often we vote in presidential elections, but we don't vote in our local elections. And these have huge um, effects on the ordinance that are are in our area. Um, you know, others still we don't have in PA, you know, a statewide non-discrimination ordinance for LGBTQ people. So, um, you know, we're having to go county to county and municipality to municipality to even get that right. And so it's important to pay attention to what's happening locally. But I think it's equally important to take breaks um, and to know when you need to check out for a little bit and when you need to take that space. Because, I mean, the news has just been really dismal and dreary and sad and frustrating and angering and um, I think if we solely are, are if we're in this issue 100% of the time like our batteries will be completely drained so I think it's incredibly important to, to be aware and participate but also take the time you need for yourself to, to recharge because because we need it yeah do you believe that what is going on now is even uh, comparable to uh, uh, queer rights issues that we've had to deal with in the past? I think it is. I think it's, I think it's kind of in this boat of like, I feel like different and the same at the same time, if that makes sense. I think that um, to some 
in some aspects we're fighting, we've been fighting for the same rights for so long. I mean, just, um, you know, employment discrimination and, um, you know, housing discrimination and hate crime legislation. I mean, those are things that the LGBTQ community has been fighting for, you know, long before, I mean, even Stonewall. And we still don't have that, you know, in the United States and in in lots of other countries around the world, too. Um, But I also think in some aspects, um, I think that there are... I think there's some levels of privilege even within the community, and I've hit on those a little bit, but I think that there are, um, and it's so different, I think, where you are and what spaces you're in, but I do think we have a little bit more respect when we speak than we used to. I think that, um, I mean, just just understanding that to be a member of the LGBTQ community doesn't mean that um, you have a mental illness, yeah, that's a big one. It's just huge. And so in some ways, it is very different in that um, I think I think we can tell our stories, and I think people listen to us different now than they used to. And I recognize that's not universal for everybody in the community. Um, but I think generalizing, I think we have a little bit more um, respect and autonomy when when we're speaking and when we're telling our stories, but I absolutely think we still have a long way to go. Before we wrap up, is there yeah. anything else you would want to touch on or say? I just think uh, it, I just think it's incredibly important for everybody to um, recognize that a lot of you know what we've been taught and what we know about has predominantly come from story have been you know have been stories written down by people with privilege, mm-hmm. and so a lot of what we know think we know isn't is one sliver of a a huge picture and that anytime you're looking at any issue you know making sure that you're looking at multiple perspectives and multiple sides of that issue and that history because um, it's very easy to get locked into understanding an issue from your own experience without thinking about how something the LGBTQ community or a person of color or a person with a physical disability or a person with English as a second language might be being affected by this this topic, this law, this history um, in a way that's been erased or previously yeah. not elevated. It's really important to put yourself in other people's shoes. Yeah. It's nice to be reminded that the history of people who love differently extends so much farther back than what we may think of. Part of this, I think, is related to the visibility of LGBTQ plus people. Before a certain point in history, the privileged were the ones to tell the stories, and they rarely told stories about us. In the last 60 years, the United States' perspective on us has grown slowly into something that Dr. Paradis described as tolerance as opposed to acceptance. We still have a way to go in that department, but I believe we'll get there. As we move towards acceptance, however, People within the LGBTQ community have begun to use or reject increasingly accurate labels, much to the irritation of those who had not heard of this developing language of orientation and gender identity. As discourse grows within the LGBTQ community surrounding how to identify ourselves, how do we navigate this with the rest of the local community? Hi, I'm Kay and I'm going to be talking to you about gender. The LGBTQ community 
has made tremendous strides in the past several decades. We have fought long and hard for our rights and just recognition. One of the reasons the LGBTQ community has had to fight so hard is because we defy traditional and oppressive gender norms. We have fought to break down all the constraints that the past imposed on our genders. And after years of fighting, we are starting to make a change. But how far will that change go? The more we challenge gender boundaries and definitions, the more our perceptions of gender as a concept evolves. The current definition of gender from the Oxford Dictionary is either of the two sexes, male and female, especially when considered in reference to social and cultural differences rather than biological ones. The term is also used more broadly to denote a range of identities that do not correspond to established ideas of male and female. So what does that mean? Let's break it down. Traditionally, people have believed there were only two genders that were synonymous with the two biological sexes, male and female. Gender referred to the characteristics and personality traits that people of the same sex tended to share. But the definition I just read emphasized the, quote, reference to social and cultural differences rather than biological ones, unquote. That brings us to the modern belief that many people hold that sex and gender are two different things. There is a large group of people who have rejected the gender binary and instead say that gender is a spectrum. There are those who are transgender, identifying with a gender other than the ones they were assigned by others at birth. There are also those, like myself, who are agender, choosing not to identify with any gender label at all. We are slowly moving away from the idea that gender expression really has anything to do with biological characteristics. But as we move away from that idea, it becomes harder and harder to define gender. The Oxford Dictionary definition doesn't really mean anything to me. It seems to be saying this is about sex, but it's also not about sex. So I decided to ask my friends if they could define it. What is gender? Bullshit. It's whatever you want it to be. I mean, I know somebody who's agender. I know several people who are agender. And uh, it, it is whatever you want to be. Like, who cares about the label? We make all these labels within the LGBT community, or even within, like, regular society. We make all these labels, and then nobody uses them anyway. Why, why do they matter? Why do why do we have to put like I'm a guy, okay? Cool. I I like, you know, being outdoors and shooting guns, and I also like, I don't know, shopping or something. I don't know what stereotypical feminine thing. I like nice-smelling uh, hygiene care products. A lot of my shower supplies I find in the women's section. I pay a little more for that, and it's annoying, and it's stupid that we label something because of an arbitrary label put on something. We make it a little more expensive, but eh, bullshit. That's my answer. Really, it is low-key made up. I mean, that could be just something from, you know, people telling me, like, gender isn't real. When you really come down and think about it, the entire entirety of, you know, this group of people with one body part needs to act and be this certain way, and this other group with a different body part has to be completely different. It's such a strange idea when you really come down to it. So really... For, for gender, if you're coming to the terms of like sex and gender are different, gender is just this thing that can't really be defined. It's just how people express themselves and it just comes down to whether someone wants to have feminine pronouns, you know, masculine pronouns. Which even, even then, that binary is just a funny result, the idea of gender in the first place. Gender is a set of social stereotypes that we associate to sex 
that we use in an attempt to oppress each other. Gender is a strange thing that everyone's trying to define, but no one can really define it in a clear manner. Partly because, you know, society has expectations for what each gender will do, which is hilarious to me because everyone kind of just does their own thing, regardless of their gender. Um, and others recognizing that the expectations towards gender are useless say, well, there's gender's just what it is, and there's no reason to put so much emphasis or expectations on someone based on their gender. Do you believe in the current popular theory that sex and gender are two different things? Yes. Because sex indicates a biological level, while gender is more mental and emotional than nearly than merely physical mm-hmm. and merely do you biological. think there is some odd way in that gender is always in some way tied to your sex though mm. do you think that it should be do you think we need gender at all i don't necessarily think we need gender i think as far as our desire to categorize things it's helpful to have gender but it's not necessarily something that, you know, people need. But if gender is just a collection of stereotypes, does it really mean anything? Only as much as we like to give it meaning. Everyone I talked to had surprisingly similar ideas about what gender was or what it wasn't. The idea that gender was this limited and almost unnecessary concept was so prevalent with everyone I spoke to that I knew we couldn't be the only ones who were thinking this. I decided to do a little research, and this led me to the discovery of post-genderism. Post-genderism is a social, political, and cultural movement which came from the eroding of the definition of gender. And it's also an argument for why that erosion of binary gender is a good thing and will liberate us. Post-genderists argue that gender is an arbitrary and unnecessary limitation on human potential, and post-genderists foresee the elimination of involuntary biological and psychological gendering in the human species as a result of social and cultural evolution and through the application of modern technology. Essentially, they believe that we don't need gender anymore. In the past, it referred to our reproductive roles, but we as a society are striving to move past seeing people only for what their body does. We define people now through how they behave, what they like, how they impact the people around them, not by what their body chemistry does. Nowadays, when people refer to gender expression, they're referring to what you look like, what you wear, how you behave. Do we really need a gender category for that? At some point, we will live in a society where gender as a concept no longer exists, because all gender is, is the stereotype surrounding sex, and hopefully we will get to the point where the stereotypes no longer exist, ergo the need for the social construct that is gender will no longer be needed. I, I think it's okay to have a separation between sex and gender, because sex is like, this is what you are assigned at birth, and until you figure otherwise and change that, gender is kind of who you choose to be, so you can stay within those parameters if that fits you, or you can leave it if that so fits you. And I think at one day, this argument will be, you know, null and void, but 
we're not there yet, and we need the baby steps to get there. And I think some of those baby steps are having a separation. Not everyone is a post-genderist. And as the people I talked to mentioned, gender labels are a useful tool to explain who we are and how we feel. But they only have as much meaning as we give them, and there may come a day when they don't mean anything at all. Thanks for listening. Up next, Richard is going to teach us about the art of gender expression and drag on our campus. Historically, drag has been here forever. From the ancient Greeks, to Shakespeare, to ball culture, to drag race. Drag has been here and drag does not seem like it's about to go away. But where is it now? It's a lot closer than you think it might be. Hi, my name is Richard. I'm a junior at Susquehanna. I am a queer man and I am a drag queen. Jasmine Masters, a drag queen that competed on RuPaul's Drag Race, once said, RuPaul's Drag Race done fucked up drag. When I first heard this phrase, I was a baby queen that started while watching Drag Race. I completely disagreed with that phrase. I thought it discounted the careers of many of the queens that have made it through Drag Race. But after learning more about drag and the community that surrounds it, I came to agree with that phrase more and more. It was never to discount the performers that went through Drag Race or those that started because of the show. Rather, it was a way to say that there became a normalization of drag, but in a way that harms many other performers. While Drag Race is great in that queerness and queer culture suddenly became a household concept within heteronormative culture, heteronormative culture in itself ruined drag. Drag queens, but mostly fishy drag, became the face of drag everywhere, which discounts other forms of drag, especially for beginner performers, kings, and performers whose drag does not follow traditional forms of beauty. For those of you who don't know the term fishy, it is used among drag queens as a joke to say that a queen is so close to traditional femininity that they can practically smell the fish on them. In my interview with Kelsey Dowling, a junior here at Susquehanna and one of the only other drag performers on campus, we go in depth on the ways that mainstream drag has affected the smaller drag worlds. Mainstream drag, so like drag queens, mm-hmm. RuPaul Drag Race, yeah, has become very big at mm-hmm. the moment. How do you feel that impacts the smaller drag communities? Well, we already know that the people who are at the top are already the people who like a lot of the people who are at the top are people who really don't need the audience and like i'm talking specifically like eureka o'hara and like i hate to call it another o'hara but fifi o'hara a lot of the people who are at the top are people who don't really need the audiences and who are spreading incredibly harmful messages and a lot of these people are also like we okay we know that the drag community has a terrible racism problem we have known this for a while we also know it has an incredibly big issue with defab performers whether they be um bio queens or drag kings and to me that ties back to the gatekeeping in the queer community or lgbtqia depending on whoever you ask but there's just this growing issue of like if you are not mask presenting skinny white and like cis passing or like androgynous looking in the fashionable sense then you aren't worth listening to so being someone who is bigger and 
has a very pronounced feminine figure, being in those spaces is difficult specifically because no one wants to listen to you. And so no one wants to listen to the drag that you've cultivated because it's not experience that they think you should be having. And that also goes back to the gatekeeping of non-cis people out of the queer community and like keeping the T and LGBT silent and also not acknowledging that drag was created because of trans women cultivating gender as a performance. Like that the first drag queens were trans women and constantly cis men who are in the queer community who do drag forget this constantly yeah that's a, a big problem like yeah yeah queer 101 lesson please yes um, so yeah just like the anti-femme mm-hmm. orientation of the queer community silences mm-hmm. a lot of performers yeah especially when there are i know so many kings who have auditioned for rupaul's drag race because there's no rule that says it has to be queens yeah. Even, like, looking in the show, there's specifically, ex- like, specific times in which masculinity is performed on stage. Like, Milk doing the, the RuPaul in the workroom look. The Lionel Richie from Snatch Game. Like, there are specific references to masculinity in that show. The problem is, is that once you have someone who is defab or who is femme who is presenting these, like, masculine characters... It's then invalidated by that person's original identification as femme. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, it's also difficult because there's less visibility for trans men in any trans space. There's not much visibility for trans men who are non, like, non-binary trans. So, like, we're talking, like, demi-boys, like, agender people who identify as men... There's not much space for them in conversations. And then also in the drag community, if you're defab and in any of those other subsets of gender identification, you're not getting anything. And this is coming from like identifying as a non-binary person who is transmasculine. Like there's very little of us in the drag community because there's no like, there's nothing for us to base that off of. Other than like, if you go way back in history and look at like Marlene Dietrich, or like any 1920s to 40s vaudeville gender performance in which there's masculinity being shown on stage, you don't really have much to base your stuff off of. Unless you want to be like mislabeled as a butch lesbian. Finding people in smaller communities that you can like find and love and share and support is probably my favorite part. I don't really like drag in like the whole mainstream sense. Only because like, I don't know, a lot of the, the queens seem a little too cookie cutter for my taste. Like, even looking on, like, because we reference Drag Race a lot, because it is, like, the main form of drag in the mainstream. Like, yeah. it's basically that. All of my favorite queens are, like, the weirder ones. So, like, my all-time favorite is Sasha Valore. But also, my second favorite queen is her daughter, Vander Von Odd. <sighs> I love her. Um, I'm obsessed with the way that she presents glamour and femininity in horror and and like i think one of the great things like now especially with dragula and like Mm -hmm. because it's on youtube it brings like this entire like internet culture and having everyone go to the internet and looking at performances Mm -hmm. that people have recorded and like because sometimes it's harder to Mm -hmm. get to like uh, it's hard to support local queens sometimes. Yeah it's, yeah, it's really hard, especially when, like, you don't know if there is a drag culture around mm-hmm. you. And so, like, 
being able to support them online, their Instagram, their Twitter, mm -hmm. their everything, and, and like being able to delve into like drag daughters, drag cousins, oh, yeah. drag sons, drag everything, and just oh, kind yeah. of like delving into it and like learning more about like the different kinds of drag. Drag has many different routes that one can follow. There are kings, queens, and gender fucks. And then within their own sections, there are other paths to follow, like mainstream, horror, club kid, and greaser, just to name a few. Every person that does drag has their own definition to their own kind of drag. For me, I see my drag as theatrical, as a way to create a character that I like to say is me, but better. Regina Shakespeare is smart and cunning, sexy and sweet, and most of all, confident in herself. On a small campus, that is pretty hard to be. With a campus that could be walked at a leisurely pace from one end to the other in half an hour, it can feel claustrophobic at times, especially when you stick out like a wonky eyelash. I remember my friend telling me that I'm very brave for wearing drag to classes every once in a while, and I told them that I was actually very afraid, and it was my character that made me seem confident. Drag, above everything else, is a performance of sexuality and gender in an extremely visual fashion. While there are straight and bio performers, there are a lot more queer and gender non-binary performers. I would like to preface by saying that I don't want to exclude their narratives. I think they are just as important as all other performers, but I do want to focus more on the queer aspects of drag more in the segment due to the content of this episode. So they are here, and you should look them up too. They deserve just as much love. In my interview with Kelsey, we talk about the ways that our drag characters have shaped us and how we shape them. How do you define drag? I define drag as the personification and performance of gender expression and gender exploration. How do you express yourself through your drag character? For me, it's a lot of blending masculinity into other niche types of style and art and performance. So like exploring what does masculinity mean in this context or what does it mean with this sort of different lens of performativity over it. So I don't know, just kind of exploring it through that lens and being like, oh, how can I use masculinity as a pop culture reference? Or like, what kind of things can I base this, like what kind of like pop culture references and like music and theming can I use to communicate how I'm viewing masculinity? Drag on this small campus is almost non-existent. Like I mentioned earlier, Kelsey and I are only a couple of a few performers on campus. Before starting my research for this episode, I was under the assumption that Kelsey and I were the only performers here. In my research, though, I found out there were a couple others that do drag off campus and bring it with them here, and there were some that graduated a couple years ago. I, of course, was really excited about these findings, and I told Kelsey, here is their reaction and thoughts. How do you perceive the drag community on this campus currently? Um, before this interview, you told me that there is potentially maybe one to two other people on campus currently who are doing drag, which blows my mind absolutely, completely, because we just, like, I've always just kind of accepted that it was just us on campus, just, like, us two, plus, like, one to maybe, like, five other people who do it, like, on Halloween or, like, during Pride. I don't know. I just... I really didn't expect there to be that many people on this campus, considering the conservative nature of it. Knowing that there's more people who do drag on campus is incredibly exciting to me. Mm -hmm. So much. 
because just being able to like talk and share this with other people who understand and get it and who also love it is like ooh, ooh, it's gonna be so good how would you change the current on-campus drag community we just need more we yeah. need more people who produce drag art but also consume drag art mm -hmm. we need more safe places to perform drag art we need more comfortable venues to be able to express queer art specifically mm -hmm. i guess that would also be changing the campus culture itself as well because we do have a very anti-gay presence in this community yeah um less so in the university sense but in like the ceilings grove sense yeah very very red and that's yeah. to be expected in such a small town in rural central pennsylvania but like living in the bubble on university like campus wise there is more of a liberal like say in most things mm -hmm. and in most mindsets and tolerances as you can probably tell, the two of us are really excited for the drag community opening up on this campus, especially now that we know our sister city of Sunbury has a poppin' drag scene. Susquehanna's campus is a little blue bubble in the sea of red that is Sealands Grove, and it really does act like a tiny haven for queer people. Sunbury, like Sealands Grove, is also a heavy red area, so hearing that the drag scene there is as great as it is is very interesting. Kelsey and I and some of our friends are already making plans to go there soon and see where we can fit in. Many performers have made a career out of drag performance, but many more have a secondary job besides drag. Some work in retail and others work as CEOs. Drag on a smaller scale is mostly a passion. A lot of the time, drag is self-funding and that the money made in performance goes back into the drag character. So makeup, costumes, and essentials like duct tape and pantyhose a second job becomes a necessity. So there is the struggle of being visibly or not so visibly queer in the workplace and in professional settings. This doesn't only apply to people who do drag, but everyone within the queer community. Stay tuned for the next segment in which Cheska explores issues of queerness in the workplace. As Richard said, my name is Cheska. And I don't know what I'm doing most of the time. I'm also a chaotic, neutral, second-level gay human, and I'm not ready to think about my future. I was deep in the closet in high school. In fact, it took me most of high school to even realize I was in a closet. It wasn't until I started college that I started to feel more comfortable. I didn't just open the closet, I practically drop-kicked the door. I was finally someplace where I could feel comfortable with being gay and, eventually, non-binary. But as I'm starting my senior year of college, I realize that soon, I won't be in this comfortable gay bubble anymore. I'll be dropped into the real world, which means I'll need to get a job. There are so many things that make me anxious about being an adult, but there's one thing that haunts my brain. Will I need to cover up my identity for the sake of employment? In May of 2018, a Texas elementary school art teacher, Stacy Bailey, was suspended after she showed students a picture of her and her girlfriend, now wife. In 2013, Amy Steffens was fired from her job at a funeral home for telling her employer she was a trans woman and was going to start addressing that way. The fact is that there are around 28 states that can legally fire people for being trans or gay, not to mention the orientation discrimination that exists in other countries. I could avoid working in those states, but not everyone can, and there's still a risk. So now I'm worried about my life after college, and for the lives of my friends in the LGBT plus community, and all LGBT plus college students who might share my anxieties. Instead of doing my usual, oh no, what am I to do? 
I'll rewatch The Good Place and eat pizza. Self-care. Routine. I figured I should do something about it, and I did. I met with someone who helps college students in this situation like it's her job. Because it is. Good morning, my name is Michaeline Schumann, and on campus I serve as the director of the Career Development Center. Michaeline is also the advisor to Susquehanna University's Gender and Sexuality Alliance, so she's a perfect person to talk to. The first thing I wanted to know was if there had been other LGBT plus students in my situation who have visited the Career Development Center for help. Certainly, and I think one of the positive aspects of myself serving as the advisor to our Gender and Sexuality Alliance, as well as identifying as a queer woman, is being able to relate to the concerns and anxieties that students have when they're going into the job market, particularly in the current political climate and with the news that's constantly kind of breaking about how LGBT rights are being eroded under the current administration. We see students who are concerned about not only looking for jobs, but even looking for internships and wondering how an employer might deal with their identity or their preference for pronouns. So it's something that we've um, had a lot more experience with in the past few years and are starting to even work to better educate the employers that visit campus about what's going on with the students of today's generation and how can employers best support and prepare for that. Now, I'm a creative writing major and I may continue writing as my work, but after years of being asked, but how will you make money? I have come to admit that I'll probably need to find at least another job, preferably a job that is LGBT plus friendly, but not every field is friendly. What's the best thing I could do to find out? Well, I would agree with you that there perhaps are some fields uh, aligned with some majors like your own that might be more progressive, right? But I would also imagine that even in the field of writing or creative writing, there are probably subsets of the industry that might have a more conservative bent or might have an alignment uh, with a particular belief set that doesn't really welcome or value the LGBT community for any student with any particular identity or concern that they have about their beliefs or something that they are very passionate about. We advise all students to do their research, consider the type of industry they're interested in working in and how it might align with acceptance of their identities and any other values that they want to feel um, welcomed in their place of work, again, for either internship or job. We work with students to help them do that research, to connect them with alums, perhaps, that work in those organizations. But again, it gets to that research. In terms of, you mentioned, you know, business students or other majors, again, I think it really depends on the industry that one wants to work in and whether or not they can find evidence of inclusivity and education and training for all the staff that work there. And we've talked a lot about doing research about industries and employers and whatnot. The other thing to do is to do some self-reflection and to decide for yourself at what stage in the search process might you feel safe and comfortable disclosing your identity. In the interview, I bring up the fact that I can easily act less gay and dress or act more feminine if there's a chance I could be fired, but that's not the same for everyone. According to the National Center for Transgender Equality, more than one in four transgender people have lost a job due to bias. Well, and I think you raise an important point because for somebody who is in transition also has to take into account 
you know, what are the other things that they might need to do that would impact the, the work environment. So we work with students here who identify as transgender and are in transition or want to start to identify as a different gender, particularly around issues like name change, right? We are very fortunate here that our registrar will use a preferred name, regardless of what legal name exists for us. However, if you're getting closer to graduation and you want to do your job search and use your your preferred name or the name that best aligns with how you identify, we tell students it's also a good time to start that legal process if you want to legally change your name because then you don't even have to have the conversation with anybody until you might be comfortable having it. I also asked Michaeline what her experiences were when looking for jobs in the past, like if she kept certain things quiet and what types of things made it easier for her during the process. I have interviewed and applied to positions both completely out of the closet and more in the closet. In fact, when I applied to Susquehanna, I remember reading that we were a Lutheran-affiliated institution, and I wasn't really sure where Susquehanna stood. I was doing some research online. There wasn't a lot available that was giving me an indicator. So I scaled back on some of uh, my social media profile, on LinkedIn in particular, and also left indicators on my resume. So, you know, showed past experience with advising a GSA at another institution, but took off some of my personal activities and my personal kind of service and volunteer work with different organizations that are LGBT plus. And I remember sighing a deep sigh of relief when I came to campus for my on-campus interview because one of the people on the search committee who they intentionally sat me next to at dinner is a member of the LGBT community. And at one point in in the dinner conversation, we had that sidebar moment. And I said, oh, are we good here? And got the, yep, this is great. And here's, let me tell you how. And that's all I needed. Now, for some, we might need more, right? In another work environment outside of higher ed, higher ed is pretty progressive and much more liberal minded Mm -hmm. in terms of LGBT uh, support than other places, other industries. The last thing I asked Michaeline about was if the Career Development Center had any resources for LGBT plus students. The page she mentions will be linked in the description for anyone who is interested. For students and alumni, we developed a resource page. So we have a, and I'll show you visually, we have a career resources page that um, focuses not just on career support, job and internship resources, but also talks about some scholarships that are available to LGBT students and then gives an oversight on the back of the the one page document about local and regional support groups. So this has been helpful for students who are both looking for career-related kinds of avenues, as well as students that just want support in the region. Maybe they need to go and talk to somebody about transitioning. You know, our health center is a a first step, but then there are organizations and nonprofits, not right in Seals Grove, but at least nearby that have served as a resource. And our GSA group is good about also trying to take students to conferences and other events and workshops to connect them to resources, Mm -hmm. career and non-career related. My meeting with Michaeline really helped me knock down some of my anxieties I have about employment in general. I mean, it's still something I'm intimidated by, but at least I took the first step towards advancing my life. To some people, this might not seem like a huge deal, but for others, it's a real problem and fear. I know that what I learned from Michaeline will help me in the next semester as I approach the next stage of adulthood. The world is not a super friendly place right now, and we don't know what's going to happen next. It feels like something bad happens every day, 
and that can be a hopeless feeling. But we as a community have been through so much in the last couple of decades to get to where we are. And I know that we'll keep fighting to make the world less shitty, even if it could take decades more. I've accidentally made this sound a bit dramatic, which is kind of a weird vibe to end a podcast episode on, but it's been done. Thank you for letting us show you our gay gaze. Y'all, what did we learn this episode? That we are all very gay. Hell yeah. <laughs> well, yes. And that recent decade show, we ain't done fighting yet for acceptance. Amen. Yeah, but... Oh, oh, also, that gender is this weird, fluid concept that nobody understands anymore. Uh, of course. Definitely the fact that we could still get jobs while being gay. Absolutely. But... Y'all are missing one very important thing. It never hurts to ask for music. <laughs> thank, thank you, the gays. gays! We love you. Yes, thank you to the band, The Gays, for allowing us to use their music off their album, The Agenda. Specifically, Wrong Number, Funk Friend, Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, The Community, and Our World. And thank you to everyone for listening. We hope you came away with something important. Or that you at least had fun while listening. And that concludes Me, Us, You. Bye, everybody!